0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 23 and it's time to shift our attention away from the Dutch in the Cape to the Amat At the turn of the 18th century, there were signs of increased conflict in the region as the Koikoi began to feel the pressures of the expanding Dutch settlements, which spread out from the southern Cape. The boundaries of the territory occupied by the Khoza fluctuated considerably over time. But in the years between 1700 and the mid-1800s they were limited to the area east of the sundays river and west of the embashi they lived along the coastal strip which separates south africa's inland plateau from the indian ocean it's an area of temperate grassland which yields a variety of crops such as maize sorghum tobacco and pumpkins however the soils are shallow and better suited to stock farming rather than intensive agriculture rain falls in a succession of thunderstorms through summer basically between October and February. The land is well-drained by numerous short rivers which run from the escarpment down to the sea. None of these is navigable for any great distance and the Xhosa have no taste for fish nor a tradition of building boats. There are no mineral deposits of any significance. Those that exist are ironstone around the Tumi and Kai rivers and yet they were and are a metal-working people having traded metals with those further west and north for generations. The landscape is incredibly varied, and these characteristics have led to diverse clan associations, as we're going to see. It's very important to note that as a people, the Khoza's traditions stretch back far longer than the Zulu, their more powerful neighbours to the north. To simplify things, we identify four major groups of Khoza in adjacent belts running parallel to the coast. In the far north, close to the mountains of the interior, the Drakensberg, as well as the second tier of smaller ranges south, few Khoza settled. Apart from being extremely cold in winter, the land there is covered with sioux felt, sour grass, which does not provide good year-round pasturage. The Khoza did wander through these two areas in summer using the limited grazing capacity, but for the most part they were happy to leave the harsher areas to the weaker Tembu nation, as well as the bands of sand hunters. Most Khoza lived in the highlands, the first line of slopes of the smaller mountains such as the Winterbach and Amatola, where hundreds of streams drain into the larger rivers such as the Fish Kaiskama, Buffalo and the Kai. These large river basins contain the richest and deepest soils and allow for mixed pasturage. The grasses are both sweet felt and sour felt, and this region also gets the highest rainfall, averaging between 800 and 1200 millimetres annually, with some places receiving as much as 2000 millimetres, such as the Amatola region. These highlands level out into a flatter and more open felt the further you move from the coast, and grazing opportunities here are extremely limited. The land is dominated by what is called Eastern Province Thornfelt, which has a much lower rainfall and has far fewer streams. Around 50 kilometers from the sea, the highlands drop sharply into the coastal lowlands, where better grazing can be found, along with numerous smaller rivers such as the Cowie, the Bida, the Tsolongka, Kora and Incabara, rising from the escarpment. This is quite beautiful countryside dominated by a rugged landscape with steepled ravines and it's this area well watered that determines the patterns of human settlement. The regions with the greatest number of rivers and streams accommodated many people and communities or clans. The bigger the river the bigger the clan. Each major river and its tributaries were likely to be occupied by a single community or clan with a single chiefdom and sub-chiefdoms living along the tributaries. The hinterland up into higher ground was no more than an appendage to the main river with some undefined areas where two or more chieftains overlapped. Because this part of South Africa receives less rain than further north up the coast, water was managed directly by the chief. No visitor could drink the water nor allow his cattle to drink without permission of the chief. This got the European sailors who visited the coast in quite a bit of trouble over the centuries until they learned to ask permission. The Portuguese were attacked by the Khoi further south for tapping water at Cape Agullis starting in the late 15th century as we've already heard. The other result of this esteem for rivers is nearly all Khoza place names are names of rivers with a few exceptions for mountains or lakes. By 1700, there were thought to be around 40,000 people living in what was called Khoza land. I've described Khoza homes previously but it's important to explain their lifestyle in more detail. They chose to live on ridges that intersected the valleys, where wood and water were most often found. Their homesteads were built facing the rising sun, the east, and near the tops of the ridges, where they were sheltered from the wind and drained by downward slopes. There were between eight and fifteen huts in a homestead. These were beehive-shaped structures, with a framework of branches bent over and then plastered with clay and dung. The rounded huts were then thatched with long grass. There was a single opening, a low door, and smoke drifted out through the roof, in the manner of ancient Celtic houses. The huts were arranged in a semicircle around the cattle kraal, which was surrounded by branches of mimosa thorn bushes. Further down, between the homestead and the river, lay the gardens of maize, sweet cane, pumpkins, and melons. These gardens were also enclosed by thorn fences to keep the animals out, something people across southern Africa do to this day, using the same thorn bushes. A homestead head or Umninimsi was the senior man of his lineage in the settlement living with his wife and unmarried children and sometimes a few relatives who were impoverished or needed protection. Polygamy was an ideal not often attained. The norm actually was one wife because most commoners could not afford a second, but some chiefs had as many as twelve. Relationships between members of the homestead were and are strictly prescribed according to kinship. Father, father's brother... Eldest son, older brother, younger brother, and each had a specific terminology associated with their rights and duties. Generally, the eldest ranked above the younger and the men above the women. Men looked after the cattle, built the homestead and fought the battles. Women cared for the gardens, prepared the food, maintained the buildings, and looked after the children. Craft work was shared with men working the wood and doing the blacksmithing of iron, as well as preparing the hides and skins while the women sewed, made pots and wove the baskets. For high-skilled artisanal work, specialist metal workers, leather workers or wood carvers would be called in from neighbouring settlements or they'd deploy specialists from their own homesteads. But it was the cattle, the herd, that was the power. Like with the koi and the Dutch, these animals were and are the symbol of wealth in Africa. When the beasts were slaughtered for food and sacrifice, the forefathers would be invoked as the cow dies, the ancestors are propitiated. An honour code deeply embedded In African tradition of old. Anything that dies for food is venerated. We are what we eat. While wealth was measured in various forms by spearheads, copper bangles and beads, only cattle were interchangeable against women. Cattle were also valued for their own sake. Years later, Landros Alberti would point out that Posa cattle are the foremost and practically the only subject of his care and occupation in the possession of which he finds complete happiness just like the Dutch in the Cape at that stage, I guess. Each Xhosa belonged to a lineage, a group of people who could trace their descent back to a specific forefather and was also a member of a clan, people who you knew were related to each other but could not identify a specific ancestor as their forefather. Duties to your lineage were clearly defined, whereas those to your clan were less specific. The ties of neighbourhood drove much of the relationships between Xhosa they lived under a chief who was not necessarily the same lineage or even the same clan. Each neighborhood was characterized by wise men, cowards, fools, diviners, and for those really unlucky, witches. A homestead headman would expect neighbors to attend feasts and dances, and he would expect return invitations. There would be stick fights and oxen racing, while social ties were reinforced by economic exchanges. The Clausa basically shared what they had amongst each other with white travellers marvelling at the network of obligations where they divide what they get amongst each other, be it ever so trifling. Cattle were pastured and herded together by the community as a whole, but were milked and stalled individually as settlements or homesteads. Hunting was also a neighbourhood activity, with individuals setting snares as a kind of solo enterprise. The hunt would begin with an elaborate game where a young girl would take part of a buck while men played the hunters. The real hunt would see one half of the party acting as beaters, driving the animals towards the bush, where the other half would be concealed. When it came to hunting lions, leopards and elephants in particular, cooperation was really important. One man would fling himself on the ground, dragging a large shield over his body as protection. The rest would spear the dangerous animal as it attempted to gnaw at the shield. They would also hunt elephants using fire. Of course, as in many cultures, There were two types of hunts, the short hunt of a few hours or a day, and the long hunts where women would travel along with the men carrying food. These would last several weeks and could often be set up to secure rare skins, such as the blue buck, for instance, or the leopard. It would take weeks to track and kill an elephant, and the ivory was used for armlets and trade. In other times, drought and famine would drive the closer to extend their range as they looked for food. The first European visitors marvelled at the cause's love of travel. Their love of action is indeed such, W. Shaw wrote later. They will occasionally take long journeys in which they have all sorts of hardships to encounter, merely to visit some distant acquaintance and not to be idle at home. For the short trips of a day or two, the cause would carry a leather bag of dry maize kernels and trust hospitality. The longer trips of a few weeks would see men and women accompanied by pack oxen carrying milk sacks and heavy baggage. Instead of St. Christopher, the Clausa would fortify themselves with herbs such as the Inyongwani, which would protect the traveller against poison, causing them to vomit if food was off. Men carried a bundle of sticks and spears as they hustled along the ancient, well-trodden footpaths, guiding them through sometimes dense woods of mimosa trees, yellowwood, erythrina, speckosbwm, loved by the elephants and the incredibly tough sneezewood, When the latter was hardened in fire, it provided a substitute for iron. Then into the plains they'd walk, long stretches covered by kongu or tambuki grass, which grew high enough to hide a man completely. Of course, rivers could not always be forded, so the kosa made rafts of reeds, or they would hang on to the tail of the oxen as they paddled across. The felt was teeming with herds of kwaka and zebra and other buck. The kwaka is now extinct, shot to death by European settlers and hunters. More about that later. Occasionally, they would stumble across the highly respected buffalo, which the Xhosa people would salute as chiefs. Their favourite bird was the honeybird, which sometimes led people to beehives, while the hammerheads and hornbills were seen as warning signs of evil to come. Flowers such as the blue plumbago and pelargonium were thought to ward off lightning, but they were actually useful in reducing bleeding and wounds. Aloes killed tapeworms, and the star like Clusia cured anthrax in both men and cattle. Other plants were used to cure spider bites to fight off the effect of cobra poison as well as adders. The ancient Porsa people lived in an intensely personal environment, writes Jeff Perez in his fantastic book, House of Paolo, which I read and reread avidly as a history student many years ago. By the late 17th century, the Khoza were aware of the Dutch settlers at the Cape, but it took another hundred years to 1800 before the first Khoza made an overland trip to the peninsula. Conversely, other African travellers arrived in Khoza land from as far afield as Delagoa Bay, modern Maputo. These were the Tsonga. One man had been sent to see how far the land of black people extended and walked all the way to southern Khoza land in 1805. Tuana and northern Sutu travellers would begin arriving in the early 19th century. That causa had a very good idea about the continent on which they lived, and the whites, they believed, had arrived on this massive landmass from islands in the middle of the ocean. That causa also understood time using the angle of the sun. A particular hour would be indicated by pointing at the sun. Months were calculated according to the moon, and a year for the causa began in June when the Pleiades constellation Osilmela would signal the start of ploughing season. The year ended with the sighting of the Canopus Constellation, or Intranzibe, which meant it was time to harvest. The distant past would be tracked as a series of significant events, or Iziganeko. These would help Koza fix their age. It would be a battle, a comet, drought, disease, a great flood. The circumcision of a chief, or his death or birth, would all be used in their dating systems. That means many of the earlier oral histories of the Clausa are very difficult to pin down using the Western calendar, although archaeology and dna testing and other science has helped fill the gap so it was the agricultural cycle which was the most closely bound to the passage of a year when Isilimela appeared wooden hose appeared with it by september the flowering of the erythrina and the ripening of certain wild fruits heralded it was time to sow when the first rains of summer turned the sour felt grass green the cows would give more milk and milk remained the main source of sustenance until january when the crops began to ripen. First, the maize would be ready, then the pumpkins, then the sweet cane and melons. Finally, their sorghum would be ready by mid-April and the cattle would be turned out on the fields to eat the stubble and add their fertilizer to the soils. One of the main differences between these Xhosa farmers and other indigenous people was their ability to grow large amounts of grain which would be stored in grain pits dug deep into the cattle enclosure, the cold, clear and dry, hungry winters we experience in South Africa. This is when working together made the most sense. Neighbours took turns to open their granaries and to slaughter the cattle. It was actually a good time to slaughter, as the cattle hides were always thicker and warmer at this time, and the Khoza would wrap themselves like the koi. It was winter that saw the most sociability. Causa men would wander from village to village, homestead to homestead, eating roasted meat and drinking the beer fermented from sorghum. The rains, however, would fail in summer on a regular basis. Southern Africa is a water-deprived region generally. When drought or indlala set in roughly around every decade or so, rainmakers would be summoned. These were expert meteorologists and would often time their visits to coincide with what they knew would be a time of possible showers. They were the psychological protectors of the people and most were feared for their powers. Hornbills were extremely important to the cause. They would capture a hornbill and leave it alive in a dry river bed, in the hope that the waters would rise up and sweep the evil omen away. If the drought persisted, then wars could start between clans. Men would drive their thirsty cattle to streams or rivers still running and fight with local inhabitants. The spirit of togetherness disappeared in the struggle for survival. Luckily for the cause, stored food was still available during droughts, so these wars were actually few and far between. The felt provided famine food, as Peres calls it, like berries, mimosa gum, onion-like roots and wild spinach. People also radically changed their lifestyle if the drought persisted, spending much time sleeping even during the day to conserve energy and water. However, it was the needs of the cattle that pushed the crozer and white settlers into the most serious confrontations when they first began to come up against each other. The crozer moved their cattle on a seasonal cycle, crossing the felt following the best grass. Sour felt grasses predominated, which was a problem. It was good in summer when the grass produced the most nutrition, but in winter, if the cattle ate only sour grass, they would become sick with botulism and their joints would stiffen. Sweet felt is nutritious most of the year, but in crozer land, There was not much of these pastures, particularly in the higher reaches of their territory. So the ideal arrangement would be to graze cattle in the Sauerfeld during summer, allowing the Sweetfeld to rest. Then they would move the cattle to the Sweetfeld in winter, when the nutritional value of the Sauerfeld was at its lowest. Other ancient techniques were used too, like burning the grass to keep it short and sweet. Years later, the first settlers found this difficult to understand, and it was going to cause many, many years of war between the two groups. Colonial boundaries would be ignored in the coming centuries because, of course, the Xhosa were used to moving their cattle from sour to sweet and vice versa. The European farmers were not used to this migratory pattern. They placed their farmhouses on a tract of land and then staked out their property with fences through which the Xhosa would pass, ignoring these alien barriers. With that outline of the Amat Kosa, I'll stop for this episode. Next, we'll hear more about the Xhosa through the early part of the 1700s including the origin mythology, the oral histories, which are mixed with shipwrecked sailors' written reports. It's fascinating stuff, as you'll hear, so please join me then. For those sending me messages of support and suggestions, thank you. If you'd like to make contact, you can direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham, or head off to the site desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com and send an email. Please rate the podcast on your favorite platform. It helps raise the visibility of this series. Until next... Ça que